Baptist Church and their adult retreats. So when I was studying through all those Proverbs messages, I thought, I can't wait to preach those for the people at the landing. Well, now is the time. So I'm preaching through five different messages in the book of Proverbs today and the next four Sundays, Lord willing. And then after that, Labor Day, a specific message geared for that specific day. And then in September, three messages on our mission and identity as a church. You can see on the back of our worship folder, we have our mission statement, and it talks about how we, the landing, love to savor our hope in Christ in worship, to strengthen among one another our hope in Christ through teaching and Bible studies and ministry to one another, and spreading our hope in Christ to our neighbors and the nations. That's our mission statement. I'll be talking about each of those three in turn for three messages in September and that coincides, and I hope you feel this, I hope you feel this rising, that coincides with leadership among the elders and our future facilities team and a Forming Together Capital Campaign team, which will be examining and then presenting to you as a body, the faith family, a, a possible vision for expanding our footprint here in this location. Not so that we become a bigger church or that we would just have more people worshiping in this location, but so that we might become the right-sized church for sending off lifetime, mid-term, and short-term missionary enterprises to the nations and to our neighbors, as well as giving birth to a daughter church, the little landing indeed, someday soon. What will I my precious wife and I, the dear elders and their wives, what will we leave? What are we doing here? Why would we ask you to come? Why would we ask you to invest? Why would we ask you to sacrifice? What are we doing here? We're called together, as Pastor Andrew said, by a mighty move of God to be one of many churches that pour over the word and draw from it the hope of meeting the living Christ in the word. And that binds us together and causes us to be a living organism known as the bride of Christ. This expression of it called the landing. And we want not for our joys as we've experienced the landing and the gospel here to be temporary or fleeting or short-lived or just replaced by some better version someday. No, we want to see that when Christ comes, come Lord Jesus, you'll find the landing faithful. Not me in this pulpit, not these elders necessarily, not even not even this specific configuration, but the faithful preaching of the gospel here and sinners coming to Christ, saints being built up, and the believers being sent out for the cause of Christ, no matter what the cost. After Proverbs and a study in why we exist as a church in September, I'll be returning, as the Lord led me two months ago, back to 2 Samuel. Back to 2 Samuel. We want to see what it's like for David, King David, to rule and reign as he becomes king over Israel. And to see all the relationships that David enters into and, and see for ourselves how David points forward to Christ and how we can follow King Jesus as he ultimately arrives, lives, dies, and rises again to sit on the throne of his father David. 
and how we ourselves might become royalty in training by reading through and studying 2 Samuel. I'm going to ask the Lord's help one more time for unfolding the verses that Andrew just read out of Proverbs chapter 2. Before I do that, everyone who likes to draw while you're listening to a sermon or color, no matter what your age, no judgment, there are coloring sheets available. You could raise your hand. The ushers will give you a little bag with crayons in it <laughs> for any age, really. There's a beautiful little image in there that you can fill in while you listen to Proverbs chapter 2. Raise your hand if your little one or you would like to do that coloring. And by the way, I want to see every one of them after you're done. They bless me. Let's pray. Watch over your word, Lord, now to perform it. Create in me and create in us the wisdom that King Solomon the Father so powerfully imparts to his children here in Proverbs 2. We need it now as maybe never before. We need it now in our lives. We need it now for personal decisions we're making or family decisions we're making. We need it now as a church for massive decisions we're making as a body. We need it now for the way we interact with a world that questions everything. We need your wisdom now for how to navigate the challenges that lie ahead of us, some of which we can't even see. For individuals who are asking specific and difficult questions, Lord, let Proverbs 2 be their answer. Let you and your wisdom in it be their answer. For those facing larger, more intractable, long-term questions, let Proverbs 2 be a massive log on that fire of wisdom to guide and to give warmth and light. For those needing to make repentant decisions away from what is purported as wisdom but really is error, back to you and your true wisdom, let Proverbs 2 be a call to reverse. Lord, thank you for the power of your word now and for its effect on our lives. Thank you for the way that you will strengthen our hands in God by these precious verses. Speak to us, Lord, for as Andrew prayed, and I now pray, your servants are listening. In Christ's precious name, I ask it. Amen. The aim of the book of Proverbs is for Solomon, mainly, along with the voices of others, to bring wisdom not only to his nation Israel, over which he is king at the time of this writing, but to his children. Because as you know, Solomon heard a word through his father David, that God had given in 2 Samuel chapter 7, we'll see this in not many months from now, where David was told, on this throne that you build for me, David, your sons will not cease to sit and reign forever. So when Solomon looks at his children and he sees them playing together, his boys and girls, and he, and he might see them throwing rocks at each other or kicking dust at each other or squabbling together. He's going, oh, Lord God, how in the world are one of these boys going to sit on the throne of Israel forever and ever? But surely they would. He's longing to place in the heart of his children as what every godly parent longs for to place in the heart of their children, not just the cleverest of wisdom that man can find. Oh, there's wisdom on the right hand and on the left. 
Every website, every television channel, every radio station, every book published, every social media site, every friendship and conversation you have is purportedly got wisdom for you. Especially if it's clickable because it sounds like it's dramatically different than last week's wisdom. But no true wisdom that comes from God. The one who knows us and makes us and sustains us by the word of his power, who knows how we work, he's the one who says, come and ask me for true wisdom. I have the wisdom that you need for all of life. Major life decisions, getting married, having and raising children, career decisions, ministry decisions, major decisions that require moral wisdom. Questions now facing us, important uh, and, and threatening from the culture, from society, from politics, entertainment, medicine, and education. All these require more wisdom than the church has ever needed before. It used to be that you could make all kinds of assumptions about what it meant to be man and woman. Now you can't. It used to be you could make all kinds of assumptions about what stories out of the Bible people may have heard in Sunday school. Now you can't make those assumptions. It used to be that all kinds of assumptions could be made about what constitutes honor at school, in the public school, or in sporting events, or, or in politics. It used to be that you could assume that at least somewhere someone wanted to try to get to the truth of something. You can't assume any of those things anymore. We now need a wisdom far more suitable than just the wisdom that might have been useful in the 80s, the 90s, the 2000s, or yesterday. We need fresh wisdom from God today for everything that we're facing. In fact, every difficult decision you might be facing in your life, God put it there in order that you would recognize your need for wisdom and go to Him for it, not just to get the answer to your question, but so that you'd spend time in intimate joy with your Father. When Ben was four years old, my 27-year-old son, I bought him a small little uh, baseball glove with a little tennis ball in it. And I thought it would be fun. I don't know if Kath thought it was such a good idea, but I thought it would be fun if we would whip it at each other <laughs> and catch it most of the time. And uh, so when Ben was four years old, he and I started learning how to play catch together. I'll never forget that Christmas when I got him that gift he was four, and he came to me, and he said, would you show me how to use it, Papa? And I thought, oh, that's exactly what I got you this for. You don't know how to throw this ball. You don't know how to use this glove. I can't even, don't even know which hand you are yet. <laughs> but that's what I wanted. I wanted you to come and ask me. That's why I got you the glove. Everything God has given to you in your life today is customized so that you would need to know how to use it and go to him for the answer. Everything. Everything in your life is an invitation to bring it to the Lord and say, Lord, would you show me how to use it? The good news of the Bible and my voice to you today is that your heavenly father wants to give you wisdom more delightfully and generously than you even want to ask for it. James 1 verse 5, if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God who gives generously to all without reproach. It will be given him, but let him ask in faith with no doubting for the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. God abounds in wisdom and the one who makes and sustains you and all reality loves you and wants to show you how best for your life 
to work. The point of Proverbs is get God's wisdom. Yearn for God's wisdom. It's going to be difficult. Not many do it. In fact, lots of people run from this. You'll see why in just a moment. God's kindness is so overflowing to us that He not only creates the scenario by which we feel our need for wisdom, He says, come to me. Just like a toddler with a baseball glove wanting to know how to, how to use it, come to me and ask me, how, Lord, do I face this decision? You are facing important decisions today. If you don't feel like you are, just wait a few minutes. I'm facing some very important decisions in my life right now, and I need God's wisdom, preferably before the sun goes down today, ideally before tomorrow is over. So do you. Everything in our lives is customized in order that we might bring it to God and say, God, you gave this to me. Can you show me how to do it? Suppose Solomon, king of Israel, had a conversation with his wife before he sat down to write Proverbs 2. So Solomon and Mrs. Solomon are talking together, and Solomon says, My dear, I want to teach the children the word of God. But Solly, it's so difficult and deep. Good for you and your friends, but the children, really? My dear, the word of God gives insight and wisdom. Hey, I should write that down. And the word of God is altogether righteous with nothing twisted in it. I should write that down too. And when they speak a word, my children, in season, it will be a joy to them. Oh, and write that down as well. And only God's word will shield them from the flood of false and tempting words that others will speak to them. Is somebody getting this? After all, my dear, we are raising royalty, said Solomon to his wife. We are raising children who will be queens and kings of the Most High God. We are raising, as believers in Jesus Christ at the landing, in our children and grandchildren, those who will one day be reigning not merely over a small piece of desert, but over worlds. 1 Corinthians 3.22 says, if you're in Christ, all things are yours. Apollos and Cephas and the world, they're yours, and you'll reign over them. We who love Christ are raising royalty in our children and in our grandchildren. We who are spiritual fathers and mothers who have places of teaching uh, authority and responsibility here at the landing, we are raising royalty just as Solomon concretely sits down to speak Wisdom and truth into the ears of his sons and daughters. Yes, sons and daughters. You say, look carefully to verse 1. It only says, my son. And then you look at the beginning of chapter 3, verse 1. My son. And you say, where are daughters implied? Oh, turn back a chapter to chapter 1. And notice exactly how Solomon begins in verses 8. In verse 8 specifically, hear my son, your father's instruction, and forsake not your mother's teaching. Where do mothers get their teaching unless they sat in as little girls? Of course the little girls are sitting in. The page that you children are drawing right now with your coloring books is done intentionally to show that. To daughters and to sons, Solomon speaks. He gives them this glorious instruction 
to awaken not just content or data or knowledge. There's nothing wrong with content or data or knowledge. We should never fall into the trap of pitting wisdom against knowledge. You've heard it said, oh, there's so much knowledge in the world and all over the internet and books and and all over people's thinking and minds, but there's so little wisdom. That's not the problem. Let there be lots and lots of knowledge. It all comes from God. The problem is that we have replaced the wisdom of man. We've replaced the wisdom of God with the wisdom of man. The issue should be so much phony wisdom and not enough wisdom from God. Here Solomon wants to give wisdom from God to his children, and this is how he imparts it. Look at how he begins. My son, if. You could circle the if. There's another one in verse 3. The whole uh, proverb, Proverbs chapter 2, is structured this way, especially when you begin to see that if. There are five paragraphs. Catch these with me, five paragraphs. The first one repeats the word if. We'll look at that. The second paragraph repeats the word then. Oh, I get it. It's an if-then logical statement. The third paragraph also says the word then. So we've got an if and two thens. An if and two thens. That's how you think. That's how parents think. That's how teachers think. That's how God thinks, an if, and a then, and another then. And then the final two paragraphs, which we won't have time for today, are two that begin with the same word, so. They begin with the same word, so. So if you do the if-then action in the first three paragraphs, the result surely will be the so-that's in the fourth and fifth paragraph. The Word of God is beautiful and orderly. And, and precious. So, so I find myself summing up the whole of Proverbs 2 this way. Here's my summary of it. If you cherish and treasure God's wisdom, then he will guard you from himself and from yourself. And then he will also guard you from those who intend evil against you. With the result that you will stand firm against sexual temptation and all kinds of temptation. And you will be able to stand against all the evil of this crooked world. That's my summary of the whole chapter. We won't have time for the two so that's maybe another day. Maybe you can read that yourself this afternoon. Verses 16 to the end. What we'll look at is the first three paragraphs. An if and two thens. An if and two thens. First the if. Verses 1 through 4. My son, if you receive my words and treasure up my commandments with you, making your ear attentive to wisdom and inclining your heart to understanding. Yes, if you call out for insight and raise your voice for understanding, if you seek it like silver and search for it as for hidden treasures. We know exactly what Solomon is getting at when his children are sitting listening to him as their their father because he repeats the word treasure at the beginning of the paragraph and the end. Did you see that? Treasure up my commandments, verse 1. Search for it as hidden treasures, verse 4. The whole thing he's saying, the if, the thing you need to do, is summarized by treasuring God's wisdom. Treasuring God's wisdom. What does treasuring mean? Well, there are synonyms. The first one is receive. This is the Hebrew word always used for receiving a wife. 
But it's used here of a father to his sons and daughters saying, receive the wisdom of God, not like you receive a present and put it in a closet and just pull it out on days when you're going to play catch with your dad. No, no, no. Receive it like a wife so that as you receive that into your family and very identity, it changes who you are. Receive in a much deeper way. Receive the way a husband receives a wife. Receive the wisdom of God as if it's your very new identity. Treasure also means make your ear attentive and incline your heart. Verse 2. Treasure also means call out and raise your voice for understanding. Why? Because you say, God, I don't have all of your wisdom. I lack your wisdom. And again, that's the very nature of our lives as the Lord has, has purposed that there be question marks in our lives and difficult things in our culture that require wisdom that we must admit and confess we don't have. And here's why it becomes very easy for people to skip this. You know, when God wants to punish a wicked nation, he gives them evil rulers. What do you want to teach us, Lord? How do we navigate this? What school do we put our kids in? What person do I actually vote for? How do I participate in this, in this community and this culture? How do I use my Facebook page for the glory of God? How do I use any other voice I may be given for the glory of God? I need your wisdom, God. These are difficult days. I feel like no matter what I say, I'm going to be misunderstood. I need your wisdom. Receiving, treasuring, being attentive and inclining your heart, raising your voice and crying out for it, seeking for wisdom as you do for silver. These are what you and I must do and we must teach our children to do. In other words, we must teach our children as we ourselves to prize them. But the very second we open our mouths and teach our children this way, we are convicted and they are convicted. Every honest dad who sits down with his children and teaches them the book of Proverbs or begins with this very verse has to say, son, daughter, you're looking at somebody who's blown it. This is why dads don't do this. This is why churches don't teach on this. This is why it's easier to go to something far more thin and shallow to talk about than getting deep. As soon as you see verses like this in the Bible that command us to treasure wisdom, we automatically have to look back on our lives and say, don't use me as a perfect example. I haven't always done it. Your mom and I are married and I stand alive before you, son and daughter, by the sheer sustaining grace of God. And you have to go deeper. You have to say, look at how much we're told to desire wisdom. If you desire it, if you treasure it, seek it like silver. We have to admit, only part of me seeks God's wisdom that way. I don't seek the wisdom of God with all my heart. And here is even a deeper reason why so many don't teach this to their children. Because they must be honest with themselves and say, I don't even seek wisdom like that. You can tell by my lifestyle. You can tell by my spending habits. You can tell by my words and my entertainment habits. You can tell by everything in my life. It's on easy display. I'm not seeking God's wisdom most of the time. Every father must confess. 
How can I be such a hypocrite in front of my sons and daughters? I'd rather just skip it. Maybe I'll let my wife do it. She's far more godly than me. Or maybe I'll just hand it over to the church or the professionals. Dads, do not shrink back from teaching your sons and daughters the wisdom of Almighty God. Do not shirk your responsibility onto your wife or the school or the church or anyone else. It's yours and yours alone. This might help, but it's going to make the problem worse. Even if you don't teach them out of Proverbs 2, they still think you're a hypocrite. <laughs> they still see right through you. They just need you to be honest about it. Just confess it. You're broken. They see it. They see it in ways you don't. Just confess it. And go to them. And say, even if, even if they're full adults and you're way older than them and you can't even get the words to come out of your mouth, go to them and say, I'm sorry, I didn't tell you this when you were younger. I'm going to start right now. That's what texting's for. They need not an example of a father who seems to always have a perfect desire for God and his wisdom. They need to see an honest, real humble, truth-telling father who can help them deal with their own temptations and failings as well. Children, by God's design, can smell inauthenticity a mile away. That's the if. Now the first of two thens. Look at verses 5 through 8. If you come to the Lord and if you say, Lord, I'm broken in my seeking, I'm weak and I confess my half-heartedness, but I seek your wisdom, I desire it, I'm thirsting after it, much as after I might uh, seek after treasure and silver, God's promise in all his mercy is to lavish upon you a grace beyond what you can ask or imagine. And I just want to show you glimpses of that grace here in Proverbs 5 through 8, the then. This is, this is this glorious promise God is constructing here in Proverbs 2. If you do this, then my promise to you is this, and we'll see two thens before we're done. Look at verses 5 through 8. Then, you could circle the then because that's the logical connection of that holds this whole chapter together. Then you will understand the fear of the Lord and find the knowledge of God. That means as soon as you confess your sin before the Lord, you understand just how far away from him you are and how just he is to destroy you. That's what understanding the fear of the Lord means. As soon as you go, I'm broken, Lord, and I come before you confessing my brokenness, even as a father trying to teach his children. And then God goes, now you're getting the fear of the Lord. Now you get why I'm the one you need the most protection from, not the people around you or the eyes of anyone who spots you as a hypocrite. I'm the one who sees you through and through. I'm the one who knows your past, your present, and your future. I'm the one who knows your innermost thoughts. No secrets with me. You understand the fear of the Lord the, the, beginning you, the minute you come to me and recognize that I am worthy of all worship and praise, and you have not given it. Four, ground 
the Lord, covenant Lord, see it's in all caps, that means the covenant Lord. He's making covenant promises here to Solomon and Solomon's children. He's embracing the children into the covenant of faith here. Watch how it happens. For the Lord gives generously gift, wisdom, from his mouth come knowledge and understanding. This isn't just wisdom on how the, the universe works observed by scientists. This is wisdom from the mouth of God. This is the same thing he breathes out in 2 Timothy 3.16. For the word of God is breathed out, exhaled by God. That's what's going on here. Verse 6 in chapter 2. This is saving wisdom from the mouth of God. We're talking about his word. He stores up sound wisdom for the upright. He's a shield to those who walk in integrity. Don't get the idea from that word integrity that you've got to earn your way into receiving wisdom. It's the Greek or Hebrew word tom, T-A-M, tom, pronounced like T-O-M. It means completeness, orderliness, short accounts with God, no secrets, everything's confessed. That's what the integrity means. Doesn't mean you don't have sin in your life or brokenness. It means you're not seeking to hide it. Verse 8, guarding the paths of justice and watching over the way of his. I'll give you the Hebrew. It's sweeter than the English. Hesedim. Hesedim. It says saints. That's a way too small of a translation. Hesed is this big, massive Hebrew word which means faithful. Steadfast, loving kindness, truthfulness, loyalty, mercy, and grace all wrapped up into one word. And then there are people on whom all that is showering down. That hesed is showering down. They're called the hesedim. If you're under the grace of Christ right now, his hesedim is showering down upon you as you sit here. It's this forgiving Faithful, truth-telling, love, and steadfast mercy and kindness that God lavishes on all who come to him broken. Every dad, every mom who comes and says, oh, we have missed so many opportunities to teach our kids the glories of God in Christ and his wisdom. Yet to that person, Hesedim follows. This is magnificent that it's right here embedded in the middle of Proverbs 2. This is the gospel according to Solomon. Oh, this is precious beyond words. The people who experience this, the people who are sitting under this hesed and are themselves the hesedim are the delivered ones. Listen to how the same exact word hesedim is used in Psalm 30. David is writing, oh Lord, my God, I cried to you for help and you have healed me. O oh Lord, you have brought up my soul from Sheol. You restored me to life from among those who go down to the pit. Sing praises to the Lord, O oh, you, his hesedim, his saints, and give thanks to his holy name. Do you see it? It's the people who are broken that get the salvation. It's the sick Jesus came for, not the well. Come as a father or a grandfather or a spiritual father as a broken, sick, and needy person, and then God will come and lavish his hesed love upon you, and then you will be, in fact, eternally a blessing of wisdom to your children. If you treasure wisdom from God, like the if said, and if you confess your heart does not always treasure it, so you come broken, then, the first then, God will have mercy. 
He will come to you and receive you and protect you fully from himself and his righteousness and from yourself and your sin. Finally, the second then, and we're nearly done. Verses 9 through 15. This is the second result or outcome that is promised and sure if verses 1 through 4 are your life and aim. Then you will understand righteousness and justice and equity every good path. For wisdom will come into your heart and knowledge will be pleasant to your soul. Direction will watch over you. Discretion will watch over you. Understanding will guard you. Delivering you from the way of evil from men of perverted speech who forsake the paths of uprightness to walk in the ways of darkness. Who rejoice in doing evil and delight in the perverseness of evil. Men whose paths are crooked and who are devious in their ways. You see what happens in verses 9 through 10? You see the development? You see where Solomon is taking his kids? Then you will understand righteousness and justice and equity in every good path. For wisdom will come into your heart. You see the difference? It's not just that I have it in my mind or know about it, or I have it on my notes of my phone, or I have it on my hard drive, or I have it in my files, or I have it in some book, or I can locate some website. No, no, no. Now the wisdom of God has been deposited into your heart, and knowledge becomes pleasant to your soul. You're now a new person. You had a changed heart. This is the new birth described Solomonic style. This is the wonder of being a new creature in Christ. This is now the joy of having God right on your heart, his wisdom, so that when you hear his wisdom, when you read his word, you say, yes, I see you there, Lord. I see you there. I see you in all your glory. And when your son comes and is born and lives and rises, I recognize Jesus Christ that he is you. He's God and I will follow him. And then I read again through the Old Testament and I see in Genesis, in Exodus, in Numbers and Leviticus and Deuteronomy, in the entire Old Testament witness, I see Christ on every page. Because wisdom has been deposited in my heart and knowledge is now pleasant, not just to my awareness or my thinking, but to my soul. This is what happened to Timothy. Do you remember? Listen to the way Paul talks to Timothy. This is exactly what happened to Timothy. He's perfect poster boy for children, child, young man sitting at the feet of his mother and grandmother. Listen to what happens. 2 Timothy 3, 14 and 15. But as for you, Paul writes to Timothy, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed. You know, Timothy is the pastor of Ephesus. He's the pastor of a church and Paul tells him, Continue in what you've learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it. That is your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice. And how from childhood, when your grandmother and your mother poured the wisdom of Proverbs into you, Timothy, you have been acquainted with the sacred writings. That's a large summary reference to the whole Old Testament. Which are able to make you wise. For salvation through faith in Jesus Christ. You look at the sacred scriptures and the power that they have to make you wise for salvation is that you can see Jesus Christ on every page. 
Young Timothy, like so many others, stood firm against the false teachers in his church in Ephesus who were prattling on about myths and endless genealogies which promote speculations. Timothy responded just as Paul instructed him with love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith in God. The wisdom he had learned from the sacred writings taught to him by his mother and grandmother protected him. There's 10,000 ways this happens, right? If you have the wisdom of God, if you know that his wisdom dwells within you and it's sweet to your soul, then you can have people lie about you, betray you, cheat you, falsely accuse you, misunderstand you, become treasonous to you, fall away, and you stand firm before the Lord. Not without pain, but firm, strong, strong in the strength that he supplies. You've all had that happen. As a believer, you don't need to fall into resentment or bitterness or retaliation or vengeance. You can stand firm in the Lord and say, I am safe in him. I'm safe from God's wrath. I'm safe from my own sin through believing in the Lord Jesus Christ and his death and resurrection. And I'm therefore safe against all those who would design evil against me. If you're sitting next to your parent right now, what you do at this point in the sermon when we are nearly done is you grab their hand and you squeeze it once to say, I am so thankful you have taught me wisdom. Don't hurt their hand. Squeeze it gently. You may remember hearing about how on January 8, 1956, five missionary husbands and fathers were martyred by the Waorani Indians, spearing them on a sandbar in the Curare River of central Ecuador. You've heard this story many times before. There are aspects of it, I'm guessing you haven't, that draw out the glory of this wisdom. Jim Elliott, Nate Saint, Pete Fleming, Roger Udarian, and Ed McCulley were their names. It was a wonderful thing, as I've read through journals and as I've read through biographies of these five and their families, you know that Jim Elliott's wife is Elizabeth Elliott, and her biographies are just stellar, excellent. I can't recommend them highly enough. But so also are, are, are the Saint family biographies, Steve Saint and Rachel Saint and others. Pete Fleming, Roger Udarian, Ed McCulley. And you might be interested to know that in the sweet providence of God, my wife Kathy and I, uh, began to serve a church sent out from Bethlehem Baptist in 1989. That was in South Minneapolis. It was called Emmanuel Baptist Church. No longer there and, and because they've merged with a different church. But Emmanuel Baptist Church had this sweet relationship with college students who were college students at nearby Northwestern Bible College, which is up in Roseville. Several Northwestern college students in the 50s began to look for churches with similar theology to what the college was teaching and that they themselves held, and they would locate this Slovak Baptist church down in South Minneapolis, and they would make their way down there as college students, some of them married, some of them thinking about getting married, some of them newly married. And one couple was Roger and Barbara Udarian, students at Northwestern College in 1953. And they became very affectionately bound together as young college students, newly married, with the congregation at Emmanuel Baptist Church. So one day, many years, a generation or so later, when a young pastor is serving this dying congregation, there's an old 25 of us in church on a Sunday morning, 
most of them quite rich in experience. In comes a woman who says, I'm coming back to visit the church my husband and I went to when we were in college here in the Twin Cities. I live in Kansas City now, and my name is Barbara, Barbara Udarian. How sweet it was to get to know Barbara and to hear more about her life and ministry and to hear more about the, the years God used to train and raise her and Roger up to send them out with the other couples to central Ecuador only to their martyrdom. Each man in January of 1956 was between ages 27 and 32. They had developed relationships, as you know, with the tribal leaders of the Waorani tribe. But on that day, they had managed to land their small aircraft on a sandbar. The tribal leaders were gripped by fear of these men, tall, fair-skinned. The only context they had for tall and fair-skinned men were the workers from Shell Oil who wanted nothing to do with God, but only with getting rich. And there was a squabble, a fight, danger going on, even within the tribe. We found out many years later that there was infighting among the tribe and that there was some sense of demonization. There was things ingested. There was the functioning of demons present beyond any shadow of any doubt in my estimation that made this a perfect storm, as it were, even under the puzzling sovereignty of God. And these five men, though coming in peace and trying very hard to be quiet and quiet, the anger and the tension of the tribesmen were speared to death. Great sorrow, of course, results in the hearts of their wives and young children and the entire world, really. News of it spread across the world very quickly. There was a great sorrow. There was a great time of questioning, a great time of reevaluation. Was this why? Should we do this? Should we do this differently? And yet it's interesting in their journals, more than one of their journals, they write how convinced they were that God was calling them to central Ecuador and to the Waorani Indians and calling them to go together. Jim Elliott specifically is known for this famous sentence, he is no fool to give what he cannot keep to gain that which he cannot lose. Do you know where he got that? He got that from a preacher back in the 1600s named Philip Henry. Philip Henry had little kids that he taught the Word of God to. One of them was named Matthew. And in a sermon, Philip Henry later communicated to his young children, Matthew among them, he wrote, He is no fool who parts with that which he cannot keep when he is sure to be recompensed with that which he cannot lose. And little Matthew decides he's going to put that in his famous commentary when he grows up. And so we all enjoyed Matthew Henry's commentary. The morning Jim, Nate, Pete, Roger, and Ed were to board this small plane and test the friendship they had formed with these tribesmen by landing on their sandbar to actually converse with them face to face. They had devotions together back at their camp, and they prayed together, and they read Scripture, and then they sang a hymn. Do you know what hymn they sang? It was Edith Cherry's great hymn, We Rest on Thee, sung to the tune of Finlandia. Why that hymn? Why that hymn? As I did some digging, I realized 
according to two of the five, that that was the hymn that they would sing so often when they were contemplating whether to become missionaries at all. When they were looking to God for wisdom, they had had the word of God poured into them and they were saying, Lord, do we give our lives to you as single men and some of us as married? And if we do get married, do we take our wives and even our children into this very needy and dangerous place? God used many times in the past this hymn, We Rest on Thee, to galvanize their faith and to confirm their calling and to remind them of the wisdom that God had poured into their lives and to pour that wisdom into them again afresh as only a great song or hymn can do. Before we end today's service by singing, as it were, with them, Edith Cherry's hymn, We Rest on Thee, I end this way. Granddads, dads, and spiritual dads, grandmoms, moms, and spiritual moms, don't just pass on to your children love for baseball, bullets, barbecue, and baby dollhouses. Let your highest passion be reserved for passing on to those in your care a God full of wisdom, a gospel that expresses that wisdom, and gutsy faith that lives out that wisdom. Would you pray with me? Lord, I thank you for Proverbs 2. I thank you for its power in my life and in my conversations with my son and daughter and conversations I can remember with my own father poured into me. Thank you for the conversations that happen in this church among all of these dads and moms and their children already. Thank you for the opportunity you give to us to dive deeper into the word and to boldly share the glories of the word with our children, even from a young age. We thank you for the great power your word has to awaken faith. Not in those only who know it or see it clearly, but in all of us who come weak and broken, tainted by our own sin and the sins of the world. We trust not in our teaching skill. We trust not in our mental acumen. We trust not in our critical thinking abilities or in our reading comprehension development. We trust in you. Build us up, Lord. Build up every family that's part of this faith family. Steal us against all the junk that's coming, raging against us, and sometimes even within us. Do a mighty work, I pray, Lord, to model our lives after Proverbs 2, the Solomonic declaration of the gospel to future royalty. I ask it in Jesus' precious name, for your honor and glory, for our present and eternal joy and all the people of God said together. Amen. Let's stand and sing.